We begin this week, uh, as I promised you we would, with another son of New Jersey. Okay? Last week uh, we heard John Francis Bon Jovi, which is his actual real name. You thought John Bon Jovi was a made-up name. His actual name is Bon Jovi. Anyway, John Francis Bon Jovi and Francis Sinatra, uh, we learned from them that New Jersey is a place of deep philosophical reflection. And especially when it comes to questions about the meaning of life. And we also learned that they love the name Francis in New Jersey. Um, this week, we are going uh, to hear from another philosopher poet. He is from Jersey, but he's not named Francis. Uh, he's better known for writing under a pseudonym, and he's called The Boss. All right, so yes, none other than Bruce Springsteen. In the late 2000s, The Boss put out an album entitled Working on a Dream. And the lyric to the title track, Working on a Dream, went like this. I'm working on a dream. Though it can feel so far away, I'm working on a dream. Our love will make it real someday. So we're going to join The Boss this week, and we're going to focus on work. Working on a dream. We're going to continue with our series, The Game of Life. And uh, we're going to ask the question, what place does work have in our lives and what does scripture have to say about work? And I want to start with uh, our first reading. I want to start with the original design. What was God's purpose for work for us? When you think about it, uh, when you think about the kind of stereotypical depictions of paradise, uh, we're not usually depicted as working, right? We're usually lying around in flowy white robes, with somebody fanning us with palm branches or something, and uh, somebody else feeding us big grapes. You know, they're, they're always very attractive. It's just like Charleston. Just like Charleston. And um, rarely, if ever, do we see ourselves working when we think of paradise. And that's because we generally have a negative picture of work. We think about work in negative terms often. But that wasn't always the case. In Genesis today, we see God's intention for work. It was a blessing, actually. It was a part of the Imago Dei, meaning us being created in the image of God. That uh, we are creative like God. That we are caring like God. And that we're given authority over things by God. And our work was originally intended to bless us and to bless the world around us. That's what we see in our reading today. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Our work was actually meant to help the world operate to its fullest. We were to help plants grow. We were to name the animals and to care for them. And we would get to enjoy our uh, stewardship of this creation. We would get to enjoy cultivating it. We would get to enjoy the fruits of it. Genesis 1 and 2 show us that work itself was actually a fruit of our relationship with God. It's something that was the natural result of being made in His image and being in right relationship with Him. That we would actually be creative and we would want to do something with the skills and the talents that He's given us. And that all changed, right? Just one chapter later. All of that changed. 
when we violated the one boundary that God gave us. And we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so then our sin breaks that picture. Our sin actually brought pain into work. Work became hard because of the curse. We see it in Genesis 3. God says to Adam and Eve, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So the curse shows us that work now takes a toll on us. Work is actually hard and painful for all the enjoyment we get out of work, and we still often do. You might actually enjoy a work day here and there, right? Somebody, maybe. Uh, you might enjoy some of your work here and there, and that's God's mercy to us, thank, thank the Lord. But for all the enjoyment we get, there's equal frustration, right? Things don't go as planned at work. Uh, people are hard to work with. You know, if you work with people, then... Uh, you have a hard time. It's okay. We're all people. We all know this. Um, And things break at work, right? And we often get hurt doing our work. You know, I've got to weed my backyard, and I have been avoiding it like the plague because I know I'm going to come away from that with a very sore back. You know, this is the reality of life now. Maybe in the garden, well, there wouldn't have been weeds anyway, but I probably would have loved every moment of it. Now I don't. But this is where our negative picture of work originated. Our relationship to work, it was actually damaged. And its place in our lives then became distorted, the way we think about it. Work is often not a joy, as we've said. It's, it's an obligation. You've got to work to eat and live. So we often resent it, and we do whatever we can to try to avoid it. We, we actually work harder just so we can spend more time not working. You know, that's the point of the game of life. If you remember last week, the end goal to win this game is that you retire as a millionaire. You make a lot of money and then you retire as a millionaire. Retire early and then you don't have to work anymore. So work stopped becoming, or work stopped being a fruit of our relationship with God. Something that we did out of our freedom. And it became something that we actually do out of obligation. And interestingly enough, now we actually think that work is the way we get into relationship with God. We've taken this thing that was a result of our relationship with Him, and now we try to use it to get into relationship with Him. We try to prove ourselves through our work. We try to prove that we're valuable by how much we produce. We try to prove that we're good, right? That we deserve love. We try to earn our way. It's like the boss saying, we're working on a dream. You know, we're trying to earn our way back to that paradise. Work even becomes our identity. Where we are what we do. You know, just go to a cocktail party. And it'll be the first thing anybody asks you. What do you do? And you tell them. And then they think they know everything about you. You know? But we we are what we do. It's... It's what I've quoted this before, but I just, it's too good. I can't get away from it. But, uh, the evil Rachel Dawes from Batman Begins. Okay, Batman Begins. Rachel Dawes was Bruce Wayne's love interest, and I think she was the true villain of that movie. 
All right, people think it's, you know, the scarecrow and the joke or whatever. It was Rachel Dawes. She is the devil. And um, because she says this crushing thing to Bruce Wayne. She's saying this to Bruce Wayne. She says, it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. It sounds so profound. <laughs> but uh, this is how we think about our work. It's what we, th- we think it defines us now. The problem is, just like poor Bruce Wayne with Rachel Dawes in that movie. Side note, he is literally a billionaire, he's handsome, and he spends his off time trying to save his city, spends all his billions of dollars trying to save the people of his city. And she says it's not good enough. That's literally how the movie ends. I just spoiled it for for you, but that's what happens. She is Satan. Anyway, so, just like Bruce in the eyes of Rachel, we are never able to do enough. We're never actually able to work hard enough or long enough to justify ourselves. Work just becomes another way that we display our brokenness. You know, it's an outworking of our our original sin. Our original sin was to replace God. That's what the serpent tempted us with. You know, you can be like God if you eat this fruit. We're like, oh, that sounds good. I want to be God. And that's really what our work turns into. We're sitting there in this ironic way trying to earn his approval through our work. But all the while we're saying to him, I don't need your help, thank you. I can do it on my own. That's the way we use our work. And the great commandment, the two great commandments that Jesus uh, summarizes the law with in Mark 12 exposes this fact to us. The law tells us what our work should be. This is what Jesus, he tells us what we should be doing. We should be devoted to this. We should be working on the dream with the boss, and we should be loving God and loving our neighbor. If we're honest, though, more often than not, that's not our goal in life. It's not often that we're sitting here thinking, how can I love God with what I'm doing today? How can I love my neighbor today? More often than not, our goal is consistent with the game of life, where we're trying to get rich so that we can retire and stop working. As we heard Sinatra sing last week, so that we can be back on top in June. You know, this is life. That's what we think. We're not even in the same neighborhood oftentimes as the two great commandments. Now, you might be thinking then, okay, that means I need to change my focus, right? I just need to join the boss, and I need to work harder at the dream on loving God and loving my neighbor. You know, our love will make it real someday. We can sing that chorus every day. These are admirable admirable goals. That's exactly what the scribe thought, frankly, in this passage. He agreed with Jesus' summation of the law. He said, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there's no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He agrees with Jesus and said, there's nothing better that we can do than love God and love our neighbors. And it seems good, right? I bet you you agree with that. I bet you if you went out on the street today in Charleston, almost everybody you meet would agree with that statement, that we should be loving God and loving each other. You know, I bet you that even both sides of Congress would agree with you. You know, like you would, you would be the one who would break the logjam if you went in there and shared this good news. 
except for the fact that there's a problem with it. The problem is that we don't do it. We all agree with it, but we don't do it. Knowing what to do does not equate having the ability or the power to do it. Knowing what to do, I want you to hear that. Knowing what to do does not equate having the ability to do it. And it's important to see what the commandment actually says. It doesn't just say, you know, try harder. It doesn't say, get, you know, work better, work, get a little better every day. It just commands you to do it. Just do it flat out. It says, don't work on the dream, just do it. Make the dream happen. Do it perfectly. Jesus says, he uses the word all multiple times. He says, we are to love, the God, love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. No compromise. No half-hearted efforts. No give it your best shot. Just love perfectly. And we don't do it. Not only that, we can't do it. Remember how scripture describes us, okay? Remember what we heard about our sin at the beginning and how it destroyed things. Paul says twice in his letters, his two different letters, he says we are dead in our trespasses. And then in Ezekiel we hear the word of valley of dry bones. How does hearing the command to love God and love your neighbor help if you are dead? Right? How does the law telling you if you just if you want to live, you just got to love God with all your heart, with everything you are, and you've got to love your neighbor perfectly, what effect does that have on you if you're dead? Nothing. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. All it does is confirm your deadness. It just highlights the fact that you are dead. That's what it does. It's where we get that wonderful phrase, beating a dead horse. Okay, this is, this is the idea. You can hit that horse all you want. You can yell at it and tell, you to take, tell it to take you down the street. Right? But all that beating and yelling does is prove the fact that your horse is dead and it cannot carry you anywhere. It shows you that it's not going to actually get you where you want to go. Knowing what to do does not actually enable you to do it. <clears throat> and this is often what our work does. The way we use our work often reveals that we're not doing it. Instead of loving our neighbor, we're often competing with our neighbor. We've turned it into a board game. Right? And there's Monopoly too. You know, there's lots of board games that turn life into a game. Instead of loving God, we're striving not to need Him. To be good enough on our own. But, Jesus' response to the scribe reveals that He knows exactly this reality. He knows this. This is where the good news starts coming, okay? I know you guys are exhausted. I'm exhausted. You know, it's like we've been on a date with Rachel Doss. But uh, Jesus knows exactly what the knowledge of the law brings. He knows that it actually just brings our sin into high relief. He says to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And Mark tells us that Jesus thought the response was wise. He thought the scribe had said something very wise because it was. He said the truth. He understood the law. But he didn't answer the real issue. It was an accurate understanding of what we need to do, but it didn't result in the power to do it. And Jesus points this out. He says, you are not far 
from the kingdom of God. You're close, but you're not there yet. The scribe was close because he understood the truth, that we're to be loving perfectly, loving God, loving our neighbor. He knew that that was more important than any religious ritual that we could ever do. But he still can't do it. Jesus said he was close because knowing the law actually drives us to the real answer. He knew the purpose of the law. He is God. He was the one. He is the word, as John says. He's the one who actually spoke these things to us. Jesus knew that knowing the law was going to actually drive that person, that scribe, and you and me to the right question. Not what is the greatest commandment. But now knowing the greatest commandments, who will save us? Who will save us? It stops the games. When we actually hear that it is with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind, and we're supposed to be loving our neighbors as ourselves, when we actually know what that means, it drives us to that place where we realize, I can't do it. And so we cry out, who will save us from this body of death? And praise God, our work is not our hope. Our work was never intended to be the cause of our relationship with God. Remember what Genesis said. It's not that we did something to earn being created. right? We didn't exist. You couldn't have done anything. God created you because he wanted you. He created you because of who he is. He created you because he wanted to be in relationship with you. And because of that reality, because of his work, because of who he made you to be, then we started to do things. Work was a fruit of that relationship. We say this every week in Holy Communion when we start the prayers. We say, Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. The genesis of everything is God, always. The actor in the scriptures is always God. He is the instigator. He's the one who starts everything. And it's because of his infinite love Our hope is always in God's work for us. And whatever we do is always just a response. It's a fruit of what he has done for us. Jesus wants the scribe and us to hear the law at its highest pitch so that we would finally recognize that we can never actually do it and we will cry out, who will save us? And when we do, then we see the work of Jesus Christ. We actually recognize him for who he is. We see his work. And his work was to fulfill the law and to die on the cross for us. On our behalf, he defeats death for us. And he recreates us. It's just a replay of Genesis. That's what Jesus does. He brings us back to life. As Paul said, we were dead in our trespasses. And Jesus comes And he takes the law, he fulfills it for us, he loves God perfectly, he loves his neighbors, you and me, perfectly, because he says greater love has no one than this, than the one who lays down his life for his friends. He gives his life for you and me, and dies so that we might be forgiven for our sins, so that death might be defeated, and then he rises again, so that we might have new life. He comes and he recreates us. He calls us into new life by saying, you're forgiven. I love you. 
It's a replay of Genesis 1. He's writing what went wrong. He's undoing all that we did. That is his work. His work for you means that you're actually free. His work means that it is done. His work means that we're brought back into that right relationship with God, with our Creator. That we're actually made children of God because of Him. We're actually promoted, you could say, because of Him. We become heirs, heirs of God's kingdom. And the result of all of that is that our work then gets put back into its right place. It becomes a fruit again. It's a fruit of our relationship with Jesus. It's something that you actually do for him instead of, you know, for your own. It's not for our glorification, it's for his glory. Whatever we do, we do unto the Lord, as Paul says. We're free in our work again. It no longer defines us because it never did in the first place, okay? We try all the time to define ourselves with what we do, and it doesn't work. We're defined by the fact that we are created by the Lord, and He loves us, and He gave Himself for us. That's what defines you. That you are precious in His sight. We heard it last week, that He lays down His life for the sheep. That you are valuable to Him. That He will go to the greatest lengths possible to find you and bring you back. That he will bring you back into his fold and keep you safe. That's what defines you. That's what makes you who you are. We're his. And so we don't have to wait on it like the boss when he's singing, you know, hoping that our love will make it real someday. Even though I love the boss. No offense, the boss. He is the boss. But um, uh, we don't have to wait on it. The good news is... That Jesus is love. His love makes it real for us now. It is yours now. That's the incredible thing. You don't have to wait. You are forgiven now and forever because of his love for you. Because of Jesus Christ and for his sake, you're free now and forever. And now the awesome question is what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Knowing that you're free, knowing that you're loved and you're safe in Him, knowing that you could never do anything to make Him not love you, you could never do anything to make Him reject you, that He's always going to come after you, that He always is for you, that He has covered you in His blood and you are declared free because of Jesus Christ. What do you want to do? You might actually do something you never thought possible before. You might stop worrying about trying to prove yourself or trying to earn your way. You might stop the game of competing against one another. You know, I might. I might stop trying to be Tim Keller when I preach. (sighs) Anyway, it's a failure for me. You know, we might stop the game of competition. And we might actually say, I want to do something. I want to be creative. I've got this gift. I want to share it with someone. I've got a friend who's having a really hard time, I want to pray with them. You might actually want to do something. And it will be a fruit. Whatever that work is, it will be a fruit. And it will be blessed. You will be blessed by it, and you will be a blessing to those around you. This is the good news of Jesus, that you're free. Enjoy that freedom today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this good news 
that we are free in you because of your work. We are actually safe and secure. That our work then is actually just a fruit. It's just a response. It is something that comes naturally and freely. I thank you for that, Lord. I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to each one of us here, that you would keep this good news that we are forgiven and loved forever, firmly fixed in our hearts and our minds, Lord, and I pray that we would see that change our paradigm, that our lives would actually be free. We pray this in Jesus' name.